From the onset of entering the promised land, the people of God struggled. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So God raised up judges to help his people stay true to the ways of the Lord. The last judge was Samuel, who judged Israel all the days of his life. The people cried out, Give us a king to judge us like all the nations. The Lord relented and told Samuel, Give them their king. The people chose Saul, a man of good appearance and tall stature, but did not have a heart for God. The Lord rejected Saul and chose an unlikely candidate in David to be king. The Lord opposes the proud, exalts the humble, and in spite of evil, his master plan continues to unfold. This is First Samuel. Good morning and happy Super Bowl Sunday to everybody out there. Oh, we're excited. Wow, that's like the most excitement I've seen in church in the six years that I've been here. Let's get some, let's get some feelers out there. Who's cheering for the 49ers? There it is. Who's cheering for the Kansas City Chiefs? Oh, there we go. Well, see, I'm in a dilemma. I'm a little bit of a pickle because I'm a little different than a lot of people. I love me a good dynasty. And not because I love the dynasty itself, but I love cheering against something. Like when the New England Patriots were good, I was like, yes, like defeat Tom Brady. I hate this guy. Then he became a Buccaneer and I'm like, I love this guy. I don't know why I ever hated him. But I love a dynasty. I also love Patrick Mahomes. I love the grittiness. Some people don't like that the way he, like it's competition. Get over it, you know? But also I'm in a little bit of a pickle because I'm also a sucker for a Cinderella story. Man, Brock Purdy was Mr. Irrelevant in the draft and how he has led his team to Super Bowl system quarterback or not. That's impressive, man. And so I, I will be cheering for the San Francisco 49ers today. Uh, it's the correct thing to do. It's the biblical thing to do. That's my message. Let's pray and go home, right? No, but it's important to me. It had, the, the Super Bowl is significant. And, and if someone was like, hey, man, like we're going to have a movie night tonight at about 530. If you want to come and watch a movie with us, I'd be like, no. Even if someone was like, yo, we're about to have a prayer gathering at the church for God's spirit to just come down on us. I'm going to be like, man, I'll pray for that before. But at 530, I'm sitting in front of the TV with my friends and I am watching the Super Bowl. Because things that are significant to us, we prioritize. Things that are significant to us, it directly affects the way we live our life. And what we're going to see this morning in the narrative of the story of 1 Samuel, what we're going to see is that the Israelites decrease God's significance in their lives. And what that did is that ended up decreasing their priority to worship God. And that ended up decreasing this relationship that they had with him. And that directly affected them in a really negative way. And what we're going to see is because the Israelites did this, it actually led to a lot of their demise that we're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 1 Samuel chapter 7. And to get us caught up to where we are here, we know that the very beginning of 1 Samuel, Samuel has a miraculous birth. He was given to Eli, who is the judge and the high priest of the nation of Israel. And Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas, not good people. They robbed God of his sacrifices. They ended up sleeping with women inside of the tabernacle. They were very irreverent, did not worship God. And actually, Eli did nothing about it. 
He didn't chastise his sons. He didn't punish his sons. He was kind of passive and let it all happen. And God punished Eli because of that. And we see what we talked about last week is that God ended up calling Samuel to say there's going to be a changing of a guard. Hophni and Phinehas are not going to be the next leaders of Israel, but Samuel will become the next leader of Israel. And that catches us up to where we are this morning. In the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 4, we pick right up. It says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphak. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The elders of Israel are asking if God is our God and if God is the one that goes before us and fights our battles for us, then why do we just get our butts handed to us on the battlefield against the Philistines? And the answer that they come up with is in the next part of this verse. They said, let us then bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What they're saying, there's this, there's this Ark of the Covenant, which to give you a little bit of a background in the Ark of the Covenant, its origin was in the book of Exodus. You see, God handed his law down to Moses, and then within that law, he told him to fashion a place of worship called the tabernacle. And inside of that place of worship, to fashion different instruments that they were supposed to use in worship of God. The Ark of the Covenant was one of those instruments of worship that God had them fashion. And what the Ark of the Covenant was, it was a symbol. It was a representation of the presence of God. They would bring the Ark and they put it inside of this place called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, only one person was allowed to go one time a year. That was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, this priest would come and put a perfect spotless lamb, slay it and sacrifice it on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of Israel. But what Israel has done here so quickly in the narrative of 1 Samuel is they have taken the Ark of the Covenant, which was supposed to be a symbol and a representation, and they have turned and they have made it an idol. When, when they get destroyed on the field of battle, they didn't say, now let us go to our God so he can save us. Let us humbly go before God so that he can fight our battles for us. They said, let's bring this thing that's in the tabernacle, this God, and let's bring it here so that he can fight our battles for us. This, temp, this idol, let him fight it for us. What they ended up doing is they ended up turning God into a trophy and turning God into a mascot. I mean, look what the Philistines said in, in chapter 4. When the Ark of the Covenant comes in, the, the people of Israel start shouting, trying to entice God to fight for them. And they say, a God has come into a camp, the camp. They end up saying at the end of chapter 4 that these are the gods, plural, that defeated the Egyptians in the wilderness. Not one time did the Philistines in chapter 4 mention the one true God of Israel. Why? The answer is, is because the people of Israel weren't worshiping the one true God of Israel. They became just like the other nations that God wanted them so desperately to be separate from. They didn't understand God. You see, the Ark of the Covenant 
was supposed to stay inside of the Holy of Holies. It wasn't supposed to be in the field of battle. And when the Israelites were getting destroyed, they said, well, duh, we got destroyed because our God is chilling in a tent in another city. Our God is not on the battlefield with us. They turned God into something that can do their bidding for them. But that's not who God is. You see, God was God long before the ark was ever made. He was the one that created the heavens and the earth. He was the one that walked with Adam and Eve. He was the one that saw Abraham and made a covenant with him. He was the one that set the Israelites free from Egypt. He was the one that parted the Red Sea. He was the one that gave the law to Moses. And he was the one that said, fashion the Ark of the Covenant. But the Israelites failed to see that. The Ark was just a sign reminding them that God chose them and that he will be their God and they will be his people to remind them that God set them apart from the other nations. It was a symbol to physically and tangibly show the people that God's presence dwelled with them and among them. The purpose was not to say that God's presence and spirit and power were confined to an object. But the Israelites lost sight of it. They didn't understand it. And what they quite literally did is they put this infinite God inside of a box. And don't we do that as people? Don't we do that when we don't understand something, when something seems complex to us, when something seems out of our reach? We want to get this big thing that doesn't make any sense to us, and we want to dwindle it down to something that we can fit into the size of our hand. And that's what the people of Israel did with God. And by making him a tangible, hold-in-your-hand kind of God, they stopped worshiping God for who he really was. And think about this for a second. God created the whole world in six days and he rested on the seventh. And on the sixth day, it says that God made all of the land animals and God made humankind. Uh, the Hebrew word for humankind is Adam, or as we say, Adam. How did God make Adam, humankind, different than all the other creation? Image of God. He made us in his image. What that literally means is it means that we as his creation get to reflect his majesty, get to reflect his glory, and get to reflect his character. It's just like how the rays of the sun reflect the sun. The sun is the important thing, the main thing, and the rays are just reflecting the power and brightness and warmth of the sun. If it wasn't for the sun, there would be no rays. Another way to describe it is like a lamp. A lamp radiates the glory of the light bulb in the lamp. If you take the light bulb out of the lamp, the lamp just becomes a weird decoration in the corner of your living room. That's the way that God created us to be his image bearers, to reflect and radiate his glory. But you see, God is infinite. He's big, he's hard to understand, and we are all, as his creation, as his image bearers, we are all finite. And finite things can never even begin to understand infinite things. And so what we end up doing is we take this infinite God and his infinite power and his infinite wisdom and his infinite size that created us in his image. And what we do is we make him into something that we can better understand. Because the infinite is scary. When we can't understand something, that scares us. 
And I will tell you, God being infinite is anything but safe. So we make God into something that we can fit into our hand. What we do is we take the infinite and we make it into the finite. Another way to say that, we make God in our image. And that's what the Israelites did. That's what we do. We put ourselves at the center of our own world and, got, and turn God into something that's supposed to satisfy all of our wants and our needs as long as we're checking all of the boxes, as long as we go to church on Sundays and read our Bible when we're supposed to and give some of our money in the offering plate and pray before all our meals, as long as we're doing all of the checklist things because we made God in our image to do our bidding and be the God that we think he should be, then he should give us a comfortable life and answer all of our prayers. And when he doesn't come through on this one-sided bargain that we made with him, when, when, when suffering comes, when persecution comes, when prayers go unanswered, when hypothetically speaking, you're a 28-year-old single pastor who's doing all of the things that you're supposed to be doing and God doesn't answer, it leads to frustration, it leads to hurt because we feel abandoned and we feel like God doesn't care about us. And we end up saying what the Israelites said about the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? But that's not the way that we were created. That's not the relationship that we were created to be in God with. That's not what it means to reflect his image. And this is what happened with the Israelites. This is where they went wrong in their time of need, the Israelites didn't reach out to their creator who they were made in the image of. They reached out to the God that they created in their image. You see, they tried to use God to get what they wanted. And it, it inevitably led to their demise. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. It says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Again, <laughs> I talk about this all the time, but I think it's something that we really need to take into consideration. The Bible is not a children's book. I know we, we make it into children's stories because it's good to teach it to children, but the Bible is anything but PG. The Bible is incredibly rated R, especially all throughout the Old Testament. And, and thinking, like, we read the Bible and we're like, and then 30,000 people died, next page. Like, 30,000 people is a lot of people. 30,000 people dying is a lot of people dying. Just to give us an idea of how many people 30,000 people is, think about 9-11, like 20, over 23 years later, we still talk about 9-11 all of the time, and rightfully so, because 9-11 was one of the worst tragedies that's ever happened on American soil. Does anybody know how many people died on 9-11? 2,996 people. 3,000 people died on 9-11, which is a lot of people, which is why we still talk about it today. And America is a huge nation. Israel is about the size of Florida. 
Israel is a much smaller nation and 10 times more people died on this day in a very small nation than died on 9-11. I'm guessing there wasn't a person alive inside of the nation of Israel that didn't know somebody or many people that died that day. And then not only did 30,000 people die, whether we liked them or not, two of Israel's greatest leaders died in the field of battle that day. And not only that, the ark of God that represented the presence of God in Israel was captured. Talk about having a bad day. That song, Bad Day, that was on American Idol a long time ago, you had a bad day. That's like on a loop right now for Israel. One of the greatest tragedies in one day that's happened inside of the nation of Israel was on this day, and it's about to get worse. You see, Eli is, is chilling out in in Shiloh, at this point, he's 98 years old. He's completely blind, and he's still judging Israel. And he hears the cries of the people. He's wondering what's going on, and it says this. He asks this man that comes from the man of the battle what happened, and it says in verse 17, He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Right after this, uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, who is Phinehas's wife, she was pregnant. With all of this tragedy, she was put into labor. She had a son and died while she was giving birth to her son. And right before she died, she named her son Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. And in, in this, it seems like there's two random things that we see. The first thing is, is why in the world, there's a lot of tragedy happening. Why do we focus in on Phinehas' wife dying in childbirth? And why do we focus on someone named Ichabod who we are never introduced to again in the entire narrative of God's people? And then why does it talk about Eli being heavy? Some versions say he was very fat. It's like the guy died. Like let the guy you know, have some dignity when he dies at least. And the reason is, is that they're not two random things at all. They're actually interconnected. You see the Hebrew word for heavy and glory they both have the same root. It's the exact same letters in heavy and glory, but heavy just has one extra letter. Because the word glory, when you glorify something, it literally means that you don't take it lightly. It means that you take it serious because it carries some weight. It carries some heaviness. It carries some importance with it. And Eli's daughter-in-law says the glory of the Lord departed from Israel when the ark was captured. But what the author of 1 Samuel is trying to insinuate here is that the glory of the Lord departed from Israel long before the ark was captured. The glory that belonged to God was taken away from God and it was put onto Eli. Eli had taken the glory away from God. And there's such significance in that he's too heavy to sit in the seat that he's in. What that's showing is that Eli can't handle the weight of glory that solely belongs to God. He can't handle the weight of sitting on the throne, the throne that God was supposed to sit on, not a human being. And what we see in this story is what we see all throughout Scripture is that God doesn't share glory with anybody. And he doesn't share glory with anybody not because he's prideful or arrogant or selfish, 
But the reason that God doesn't share glory with anybody is because only he can handle the weight of glory. People can't handle the weight that belongs to the Lord, the glory that belongs to the Lord. And what we see here is that the people took the glory away from God and they started worshiping images They started worshiping people, and they started worshiping organizations that were supposed to be the ones representing God. And Israel was in sin. They abandoned God that chose them and called them by name. The God that said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's a really big deal because the punishment for leaving God and worshiping other gods is very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says that for people that abandon God, it says that the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Verse 68, and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I, being Moses, promised that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. You see, the ultimate form of punishment for people that disobeyed God, for people that that removed God from the center of their life and put other things like idols, the punishment was exile. And what the people of Israel deserved is the people of Israel deserved for the Philistines to come and fight them and defeat them and to take them from their land and to bring them into their land far away from them and put them into exile. And we see that the Philistines did come. The Philistines did fight against them. The Philistines didn't only defeat them, but they absolutely embarrassed them. But the people of Israel never went into exile. And there's something very beautiful in the language that's used here to see why Israel didn't go into exile. It's actually in when Phinehas' wife names their son Ichabod. It says, And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Something to know in Jewish literature, when you see things repeated, that's not accidental, it's very purposeful. And it's very purposeful because it's very important why it's there. She repeats twice that the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured. But this is the thing that's most fascinating to me. Is the word departed actually has other meanings. And I believe the most accurate depiction, the most accurate way to name Ichabod was not the glory of the Lord has departed, but the most accurate translation was the glory of the Lord had been sent into exile. God took their punishment. God was the one that after the Israelites were defeated by the Philistines, he was the one that went into exile. And what the Old Testament is constantly pointing to is the fact that there's got to be something better. Everywhere in the Old Testament, it's pointing one day to the cross. This is pointing to the cross because for us, our punishment of our sin, of our rebellion against God is death. Eternal separation away from God forever. Another way to say that our punishment is eternal exile away from the kingdom of God. 
But God came and God is the one that took our punishment. God is the one in human flesh through Jesus Christ that went into exile for us. And the crazy thing is about all of this is that God was sent into exile into the land of the Philistines. But I love this story. In chapter 5, it's really funny. It's like you kind of laugh when you read the Bible a little bit. Because God was sent into exile, but he wasn't passive when he was in exile. You see, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they put the Ark of the Covenant inside of Dagon, which is their top god. And basically saying that God is now going to work. The God of the Israelites is now going to worship the God of the Philistines. Next morning, they go in and Dagon, which is this mermaid looking dude, he's laying down face first in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Like, oh, that's weird. Like, this doesn't usually fall like this. And they put it back up. And then they come in the next morning and Dagon is in front of the Ark of the God again. But he's decapitated and his hands are cut off. It's kind of like this funny, like God's like, and what's up? And so they, people in the city start dying. I mean, they're dying. They're getting tumors. And they're like, send this away. And the Philistines had five major cities where five major gods were. And so God gets sent to another city. And in that city, everyone starts dying. Everyone starts getting tumors. They're like, get it away. They send it to another city. They start dying. They send it to all five cities. And then the Philistines say this. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy. There's the word heavy again there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Philistines are no longer saying these are the gods that defeated the Egyptians. They're now saying the one true God, big G, Elohim. And so what I love about this story is that in the midst of all of this tragedy and chaos and rebellion, God always had the redemption of his people in mind. And for us, redemption is always on the mind of God. You see, his goal and his purpose wasn't just for the Israelites to be free from the bondage of the Philistines. His goal and purpose was to be set free from the bondage of sin, to live as the creation who were made in the image of God, not the people who made God into their own image, to worship him the way that they were designed to. The Lord never stopped fighting for Israel. He punished them, but he punished them for a purpose, for them to come back to the way that they were created in the first place, to worship him the way they were designed to worship him. God always has redemption on the mind for us, for his, for his people. And, and, and so this, this ark represented the presence of God. It represented a God being with his people, and the people of Israel lost sight of that. They viewed it as an idol. They turned God into somebody that can do their bidding for them. But at the end of the day, that's not who God is. And so the ark was a symbol. You see, but the ark was also a foreshadowing. If you remember, the only place where the forgiveness of sins, where sins could be atoned for, was on top of the ark of the covenant. Once a year. The, the high priest would come in and offer a lamb. And the blood of that lamb would cleanse the sins of the people of Israel for an entire year. 
And that's foreshadowing to the cross. It's foreshadowing that the only place where the forgiveness of sins can happen is at the foot of the cross. Where Jesus became the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice. That you wouldn't have to sacrifice year after year after year. He became the once and for all sacrifice. And so the people of Israel looked at the ark of God and the, and the presence of God had lost its power and significance in the life of the Israelites. And that directly affected the way that they lived. And I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Has the power of the cross lost its significance in our lives? You see, the cross is everything. The cross changed our identities. The cross changed our eternity. The cross shows and proves the crazy and scandalous love that God has for us. The significance of the cross is supposed to affect and directly affect every single aspect of our lives. But the question is, does it rule our lives? Does it affect the way we view our relationships? Does it affect the way that we date? Does it affect the way that we view marriage? Does it dictate how we spend our money or, or how we give our money away? Does it affect the way we work? Does it affect the way that we view conflict? Does it affect the way that we view people who disagree with us or maybe people that don't view things as importantly as we view things? Does it affect every single area of our life? Does it, does it affect conversations we have with waiters and waitresses when they come to our table? Do we view them as, as people who are actually infinite beings who are either going to spend an eternity in heaven with God with us or an eternity in hell? Does it affect every single area of our lives? Or have we taken this object that's not just supposed to change our personalities, but radically change our identities, and have we turned it into a cheap piece of jewelry that only merely shapes what we do on Sunday morning between the times of 8.30 and 10.30? Has the power of the cross lost its significance in our lives? And maybe the better question is where has the power of the cross lost its significance in our lives? Let's take it home. You see, the ark was taken. The people were defeated. God wrecked shop in the land of the Philistines, and the ark was brought back. Eli is now dead. Samuel is now the leader of God's people. And Samuel in chapter 7 looks at his people and he says, guys, we cannot continue making the same mistakes. Guys, if we want God to truly be the ruler of us, we have to repent of our sin. And, and he laid it out. Repentance isn't just sorrow. Repentance isn't just I need to change. Repentance is sorrow leading to action. And it says the people of God, God on their knees, they destroyed the idols that they were worshiping that were not God, and they went back to the Lord. And then the Philistines came back at Ebenezer, the exact same place that they defeated Israel seven short months before this. And instead of them saying, go get the ark of God, go get that God so he can do our, be do our bidding, they went to Samuel and said, Samuel, can you go to God and ask him to fight our battles for us? 
And it says that the Lord heard them, the Lord answered them, and the Philistines were radically defeated at Ebenezer. And so this story starts with catastrophic defeat. But the story ends in victory. And the only difference is the hearts of the people. The only difference was who and what was at the center of their lives. And so for us this morning, we have a stripped worship, a worship set, this intimate setting. And, and I don't want to just jump over this and gloss over this like it's not a big deal and just go from one thing to another. But what I want us to do is I want us all just individually to get in the presence of God and to talk to him. And to ask ourselves these questions. Where has the power of the cross lost its significance in your life? And where do you need to repent? And I don't know what that means. That could mean there's, there's unconfessed sin. That could mean that there's conflict that's unresolved. There's, there's bitterness and anger in your heart over somebody. And maybe the Lord is just like, yo, I want to be at the center. I don't want these people, I don't want this organization, I don't want anything to be at the center but me. And I don't know what that looks like. This time is going to be whatever you want it to be. If if there's someone that you're at odds at in this room, maybe that means getting up and just going and say, I need to ask for your forgiveness. Or I need to let you know that, that I'm hurt and that is getting in the way of my relationship with God. Maybe that means going to a trusted friend and saying, I need to confess, I need help, I need prayer. I'm going to leave that open to what we want it to be. We're going to have a few minutes here to do this. And then we're going to enter in to worship one last time. As I was just standing there, just the, the word that has been coming to my mind the last two weeks was the word that's been was coming to my mind when I was there. And the, it was just over and over, revival, 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 revival. Yeah, we see these big movements of God throughout history. We saw it at Asbury a couple years ago, the way that that starts is in each individual life. When one heart is revived and another heart is revived, like it's not, we're, just, we're a big group of people that's all individual beings. And I believe revival does not happen when there is unconfessed sin. I don't believe revival happens when there is something that is not, the gospel is not the cross at the center of our lives. And I think my question is, what's holding us back? What's holding us back from our hearts being revived, from a fresh spirit, a fresh wind coming on us, coming on this place? For the Israelites, it took one of the greatest tragedies that's ever happened. And I believe the Lord gives us his word so that we don't have to go through a tragedy for us to come back to the foot of the cross. We learn from history so that we can humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord before tragedy has to come. But as we know, the Lord does not share glory with anything or anybody because he is a kind God and he doesn't want to see his people destroyed by it. And I just feel a sense of of stirring just in this place in my heart. I believe the Lord wants to do something through this place that nothing in Searcy, Arkansas has ever seen before. I believe the Lord wants to do something in your family and in your workplace that he has never done before. And the way that he does it is through his people that get on their knees and they say, God, I just want you. 
I don't want what this world offers. I don't want what I think is best. I want you, and I'm going to come to the foot of your cross, and I'm going to sacrifice everything that I can, and I'm going to destroy all my idols because it's all about you. And so I don't know what that is. But man, if you want to pray with people, we're going to have myself the elders, if you are a leader in this church and you ain't any of those things and you want to come up here and just invite people to pray, if you see someone out there, just go pray for them. Go put your hand on them. I believe the Lord uh, wants to use people that aren't just on stage with a mic. The Lord wants to use us all for that. Uh, We took communion with each other. Uh, We were not able to take offering, uh, but there are boxes in the back. If you have some money or checks that you want, they're in the back by each door. You can place it into that. But you guys know what to go do now. Go love first. We love because he first loved us. Have a great week of worship. I'll be down here.